Hello, and welcome to Mountain Talk. I'm your host, Rachel Geringer. In this episode, we bring you a recent debate between two candidates vying to represent Virginia's 9th district in the U.S. House of Representatives. Democrat Anthony Flaccavento and incumbent Republican Morgan Griffith. The debate took place at the Bristol Hotel in Bristol, Virginia. It was sponsored by the Bristol Chamber of Commerce, and the recording comes courtesy of WYCB. WMMT does not endorse political candidates, but we welcome interviews with anyone running for political office as a public service. Opinions expressed in this episode of Mountain Talk are not necessarily those of WMMT or of Apple Shop. The first question asked each candidate what they would do to create more bipartisanship in D.C. Uh, Diana get on uh, prescription pharmacy issues. There are a number of issues across the board that we can work on together. And working together, when you start working with people and you get to know them, you're not nearly as likely to have a flare-up of your temper. And so we can get a lot done, and there's more being done than the press covers. And so it's important that everybody knows that uh, we are, in many cases, working together. Obviously, there are some flare-ups from time to time, and that's what the press loves to cover. But I appreciate the question. Thank you. Question number two will come from Beth Reinhart. We'll start with you, Congressman. Last month, Congress passed nearly unanimously the Opioid Crisis Response Act of 2018. It was a massive bill that had the input from as many as 70 members of Congress. It could be comprehensive legislation that will make progress against the opioid epidemic. Cynics may dismiss it as another spending boondoggle meant to benefit incumbents as they campaign for re-election. How do you see it? Well, I had several of those uh, uh, ideas that were in there that were mine. Now, we ended up with the Senate bill, but uh, two of the concepts that came out of the House were mine that dealt with prescription drug monitoring programs. Uh, you know, it's not uh, something that you go and be cynical about. There's a reason that Republicans and Democrats got together on this. The opioid crisis is serious. It's particularly serious in our area. Uh, pills were being dumped by McKesson and other companies into West Virginia. They're paying big fines. I grilled them in a cross-examination in one of our hearings as to what they were doing. My district, the 9th District of Virginia, where we live, touches four other states. So you can get drugs at four different, in four or five different states in just a couple of days. That's why these prescription drug monitoring programs at the national level, where they, come, where they can talk to one another across state lines, are so important. And that's why I was very, very proud to champion that and have worked with Democrats and Republicans to make that happen. Mr. Flacavento, same question. I think that bill does have a lot of um, good steps forward. I, it's uh, pretty late in the game. I mean, it's unfortunate that we've had a crisis that's been brewing basically now for a generation. Um, I had the privilege back in January when I was campaigning of meeting with the folks in the Giles County Drug Court, one of several drug courts, which is an alternative to incarceration. Drug court, which brings the judge together with the prosecutor, with rehab therapists, with local law enforcement, is working. The problem is it's too small, and we need solutions, and we need state and federal government to invest in those solutions that can work. Drug court is one thing. Another thing we desperately need is far more treatment facilities. We simply have many, many people in serious addiction who have no option to get the kind of longer-term treatment that they need. Both of those things, I think, are absolutely the responsibility of the government. And I would say that 
the lawsuits that the counties and the state has filed against big pharma are spot on. We need to take those resources and, your and funnel expired. them into drug courts. Rebuttal? Rebuttal? Yes, uh, and I appreciate it. Uh, and I don't disagree with drug courts at all, but by the time they get to drug court, we already have a problem. Drug courts have been around for about 25 years, and they are a part of the solution. But the bill that we passed had money for treatment centers in, built into it. Enough? No. Should we be doing more? Yes. But I will continue to work to make sure that we can find the solutions that work. And it's not just one or two ideas. It's going to take bills that have 50, 60, 70 ideas in them, as you previously heard. I'll rebut Rebuttal. Yes. I think part of what we also have to recognize is that we need to have solutions that are based in what the community needs, and we cannot be encumbered by the sources of our political contributions. I take no corporate contributions. My opponent does take PAC money from contributions, including from the, the pharmaceutical industry, from Big Pharma. And, and personally, personally, I think that that will affect and impact any legislator's point of view and the votes that they cast when they are obligated. Time's expired. Question three will come from Paul Johnson. We'll start with you, Mr. Flacavento. A year ago, workplace sexual misconduct became a national issue. It's referred to commonly as the Me Too movement. The House and Senate pay it passed separate bills requiring members who reach settlement agreements in sexual misconduct cases pay with their own funds and not taxpayer dollars. But neither bill has been passed by both chambers of Congress and sent to the president. However, this does not address another issue. Millions of taxpayer dollars have been paid in settlement cases over the years. And with a few exceptions, the identities of members of Congress and their staff who were involved in these cases remain secret. Doesn't the public have a right to know who they are? Yes, I think they do. And I think those bills should pass, and I think that should be disclosed. In our campaign, when we launched our campaign, we created, of course, a set of personnel policies, one of which was a zero-tolerance policy for any form of sexual abuse or sexual harassment. I think that's a minimum, to carry that in to Congress as a standard. And I'll say also that part of the problem we have, not only in Congress, but across our workforce, is that we have non-disclosure agreements, which have become commonplace, have become a requirement of employees to sign these non-disclosure agreements as a condition of employment. And it's exactly those non-disclosure agreements, whether in the public sector, like Congress, or the private sector, that are hushing women and other victims of sexual abuse. We must move away from the excessive use of these non-disclosure agreements so that we, in fact, can know when this abuse starts and stop it. Congressman? My opponent and I agree. Uh, sexual harassment should not be occurring. And when there is a case that happens in the United States Congress and there's a settlement, it ought to be out of the congressman's or congresswoman's uh, funds. It ought not be out of government funds. And it ought to be open to the public. Nondisclosure agreements are a problem when it comes to uh, sexual misconduct. And that needs to be changed as well. And as a part of what we're doing, as the House has been looking at this, the House Administration Committee uh, had every member and every staffer go through training on what is and what isn't, so, because for some reason some people don't seem to know. And uh, I think that, that was helpful that everybody knows and they know what their rights are. And that was a part of what we did to try to address this situation as well. Question four will come from David McGee, and we'll start with you, Congressman. According to researchers at the Northeastern University, 10 students die annually from gunfire at schools, which is obviously 10 too many. 
However, more than 800 students die each year during regular travel to and from school. 2% in school buses, 74% in personal vehicles, and 22% walking or riding a bicycle. Are we focusing on the wrong threat to school children? Well, I think we ought to focus on all threats. I mean, you lose a child uh, to gun violence, you lose a child to uh, an automobile accident or a bus accident. Uh, those are all horrific uh, situations, and it shouldn't happen. Uh, so we need to focus on both. I don't know that you can pick one or the other as being where we ought to be focused. We ought to focus on both. Uh, my children attend public schools in Salem. My, my daughter's now at Virginia Tech, but she just graduated last year. These are issues that we had to look at and, and try to figure out. And as children, particularly when they get those driver's licenses for that first year or two, they need to be a little more careful, which is why most states, I know Virginia did when I was in the state legislature, passed laws that put restrictions on that first year of driving. So we need to pay attention to both, and I think it's extremely important that we do look at both. David, I would say that um, if you look at the rates over the last 30 or 40 years, deaths from vehicle driving, deaths from uh, driving an automobile or being a passenger have been in a relatively steady decline. Uh, the opposite is true of gun violence. So it's not that one form of lethal lethality is more important than the other. It's just the fact that we have been making progress on the number of automobile deaths. And of course, along with that, the phenomenon of driving while intoxicated, which we've also spent a great deal of time and energy. The difference between the two issues, in my view, is that in one case, doing with vehicles and driving under the influence, We've been trying to grapple with that and making some progress. In the case of school gun violence, we've been largely ignoring it and only just now beginning to have a public conversation about what can and should be done. Question five will come from Beth Reinhart. We'll start with you, Mr. Flacavendo. In the two extremes of the healthcare debate, one side argues people should be able to pick as much or as little or no health insurance coverage as they choose. The other side argues for a mandatory government-managed, single-payer system in which everyone must participate. Where do you stand? Well, when I think about this issue, um, we had a health care forum just last week, and a couple came down from Floyd, the Gregory's, and they were, like a lot of people, somebody where the health care system just wasn't working. Doctor prescribed retreat treatment for Mr. Gregory for a heart condition was denied repeatedly by the insurance companies even as he had stroke after stroke. That's ridiculous, that's wrong. I wanna see us move to a system that guarantees two basic things, that all of us get health coverage and that it's affordable. And to me, the way we do that is with a sliding scale Medicare for all, a Medicare for all where you pay as you are able and as your income allows, and a Medicare for all that provides coverage that actually saves money in the long run because we know that the cost of private insurance is much higher per dollar of healthcare expenditure than a Medicare-run system. Congressman. Thank you. Uh, Government-run healthcare will be far more expensive than what we're spending today, and we want to make sure that everybody is taken care of, but government-run healthcare will not do that. It just won't. The bottom line is, is that I, I once had a friend who lived uh, in England, and what would have been routine heart surgery in the United States, he had to wait nine months for. His family was absolutely convinced his life was shortened because there was, in fact, rationing of health care. He couldn't get surgery you would have gotten immediately in the United States. 
during the time period, during that nine-month time period, had to wait and wait and wait, and his heart got weaker and weaker. So, you know, let's not buy into the plan that there's a panacea if you have government-run health care. And let's remember, right here in Bristol, President Obama came in and said, you know, if we pass the plan, you're going to have uh, $2,500 in savings on average. Rebuttal. You're going to have $2,500 savings on average for the average household. Well, that didn't happen. That did not happen. The people in the district keep coming up to me at all the different events I go to time and time again and say, you know what, I was better off before. I can't afford my per diem. I can't afford the co-pays. The system is not working. We need to reform the system, but the reform that is offered by the Democrats, government-run health care, is not the answer that we didn't, we, we believed them last time and it turned out not to be true, and the promises they're making now will not be true either. Rebuttal. Rebuttal. We know this. We know that 20 cents out of the dollar when you spend on health care goes to private insurance. 20 cents out of the dollar. With Medicare, it's closer to three cents there will be significant savings. We also know that it's not just that case in England, but thousands, millions of Americans are in fact waiting for ordinary procedures. Healthcare is already effectively rationed in our country. The question is, can we arrive at a system that provides true affordability and truly universal coverage? Gentlemen, you both have three rebuttals remaining. Question six will come from Paul Johnson. We'll start with you, Congressman. The U.S. tax code is nearly 80,000 pages long. We can all agree this is massive. Each year, millions of everyday Americans must hire professionals to determine what they owe the government. And sometimes they get it wrong. What should be done about the tax system that is currently in place? Well, we did a bill last year that, uh, that made it a little more simple. When you go to file your taxes next year, I think you'll see that you have a much simpler bill. You're going to see that you have uh, an increase, almost double, on your child uh, tax credit. Uh, lots of people are getting money back in, in, that they can stick in their pockets. Uh, you know, it varies from family to family, but a lot of people are getting it. And furthermore, those tax cuts also, not only did they simplify the code some, not as much as I would have liked, but they simplified it some, but they also created the stimulus for this job growth that we're seeing, and while I would like it to be even more robust in, in southwest Virginia, we're seeing jobs created. Uh, 300 jobs in Pulaski County this week attributed to uh, the tax cuts. Jobs over in Buchanan. Everywhere I go, people are saying, we're able to hire somebody else. We're able to invest in more equipment, and now our economy is starting to move. The tax simplification that we did in the tax cuts and jobs bill was a good thing, and I will fight to defend it and make sure that you get to keep your, time's your tax expired. Money. Mr. Flacavento. Simplification is important, but the bigger issue is fairness, and the bigger issue is what is good for the economy and the nation overall. I don't know who in Buckhannon County, I know that in Buckhannon County, the unemployment rate is still almost double the state average. And I know that this tax plan has given school teachers across the district who are struggling mightily roughly a one or two dollar per day tax break. What exactly are they going to do with that in light of all the other rising costs? I favor a tax bill that, yes, has simplifications, but is fundamentally focused on working people, on the middle class, and on small businesses. That's who should be the targets of our tax cuts, because they need them, but also because they turn around and invest. They turn around and spend. When we give tax breaks to the wealthiest Americans and the biggest corporations, which, by the way, we've been doing for 40 years now, 
they don't invest in it anywhere near the way small businesses and working folks do. We have to change the focus of our tax plan. Time's expired. Question seven will come from David McGee. We'll start with you, Mr. Flacavento. Whether you believe in border walls or pathways to citizenship, there is widespread agreement that our immigration system is broken. Please identify a couple of steps that you believe should be taken to fix the system. Well, first of all, I, we have to continue with the border security that actually is pretty strong right now and has been improving. The, the notion that we have a porous border and people are just pouring across it in droves simply isn't true. Now, we do have illegal immigration, but one of the ways we can do that, that we can stem that, is to make sure that the pathway to citizenship is clear, is reasonable, so that people will choose to come here legally. That's an absolutely essential ingredient of immigration reform. The second thing is to recognize that the dreamers, the, the so-called DACA young people, have a pathway to citizenship and it ought not to be delayed anymore. It ought to be action that Congress takes and the White House signs very quickly. And the, the last thing I'll say is that fundamentally if we want to stem the tide of people coming from Central America and Mexico, we need to help those countries improve their economies and improve their democracies so so many people are not fleeing violence and fleeing oppression. We can save ourselves a lot by making those nations stronger. Congressman? We have to build the wall. Now the wall may include drones, it may include uh, smart fences, it can include all kinds of things, but we have to make our border more secure. How do we know this? 4,000 people are in a caravan headed towards the border as we speak. The president is, is threatening to close the border with Mexico if they, if they let those folks through. Mexico is now sending people down to their southern border. The reason that they keep coming is because our border is more porous than it ought to be. We catch some, but we don't catch nearly enough. And that brings all kinds of problems about drugs, human trafficking, et cetera. We should make the system easier for people to access because we want immigrants to come here. We want people to come and share the American dream. That's what makes America great. And I voted for bills this summer that included pathways for citizenship for the dreamers after they do certain things for the United States and for those students and children who came here with their expired. parents. Extend. Rebuttal. Those children who came here with their parents legally. Everybody talks about the people who came here illegally. We're going to give them something special. But the bill I voted for said if you came here with your parents legally and because if you're from India it takes 40 to 75 years is what I've heard to actually get in because of quotas. Those students should be able to come in. Those children who think of America as their home should be able to come in under the same pathway that we create for any of the dreamers. Rebuttal. 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 Those 4,000 people are coming here not primarily because our borders are porous. They're coming here because their lives are wrecked by violence, because they're fleeing extraordinarily difficult situations in their home country. Again, I say the long-term solution to immigration, among other things, has to be a focus on helping those nations build prosperity and have representative rather than repressive governments. The president's not only getting ready to turn them back, he's talking about reinstituting the child Your separation policy. Gentlemen, you both have two rebuttals remaining. Question eight will come from Beth Reinhart. We'll start with you, Congressman. The Federal Communications Commission launched the National Broadband Plan in 2010. Its goals included increasing the access to broadband throughout the nation. Eight years later, and Southwest Virginia is still dramatically underserved by high-speed broadband technology. 
What should the federal government do to promote the expansion of broadband internet in remote areas? First thing we need to do is use a little common sense. Part of the reason that the plan from 2010 didn't work is because the FCC does not have a map. They don't know where they do have service and where they don't have service. So when they started issuing grants, they sometimes took grants for places that already had broadband, maybe not as fast as they wanted, and turned down places that had no broadband at all. The FCC has to do better, and I've been working with Marsha Blackburn and with uh, Johnson of Ohio in an attempt to get that done, and we're pushing a bill through the House. Let's hope the Senate uh, sees fit. I know Marsha will work on it when she's in the Senate, but the bottom line is, is that we first have to make sure we're doing the common sense things. Let's know where we don't have coverage, and then let's put coverage in there. Secondly, and I probably won't have time to get into all this, there's all kinds of new technology that we have to look at too. We are not going to be able to lay the wire every single location and every single spot. It's not gonna happen, there's just not enough money. So what we have to do is use new technology, like what they're experimenting with in upstate New York with Microsoft. Your time has expired. Mr. Flacamento. And I'll, uh, I'll build on that and say I agree that we should be looking at new technologies, including microcell technology that's already being deployed in certain parts of southwest Virginia, the potential for white space technology, TV, and micro-trenching, as it's sometimes called. There's a lot of emerging things that not only are less expensive, but also, in some cases, better suited to rural areas and to the hills and valleys. Absolutely, we should be exploring them and investing in them. But fundamentally, Utilities, of which broadband is an essential one, simply cost way more per household in rural areas. And so I support the development, the creation of a national infrastructure bank, a bond-funded, not a taxpayer-funded, a bond-funded bank that would be capitalized at between three and four trillion dollars in order to give us the money to do broadband, not to mention rail along I-81, road expansion. We need a serious, not a middling commitment to infrastructure in this country. Question nine will come from Paul Johnson. We'll start with you, Mr. Flacavento. Private developers are seeking state approval to establish a resort casino in Bristol. Now, obviously, this is a state and not a federal matter, but what is your opinion of a casino in the 9th District, and what, if anything, would you do to either support or oppose it? I knew that question was going to come up, Paul. <laughs> um, so I'm mixed about it, I guess I would say, but here's my concern about it. There, of course, could be issues with, with drugs and crime and other problems. I think that's probably a more manageable part of the problem. My concern is this. Casinos have become the latest form of economic development. And while in this case we're not talking about spending taxpayer money, because Mr. McLaughlin and, and his partner are planning to fund it themselves, the reality is the casinos are actually closing. Two have closed in the last few years in Mississippi, four in Atlantic City. Casinos have become the go-to choice to try to create jobs and solve revenue problems, but we may be looking at an overbuilding of them. The second question I have is about the quality of the job. I just am skeptical that these will be good-paying, long-term jobs. They will ebb and flow as the casino's fortunes go. And so I'm very concerned about both the long-term prospects and the job quality. Congressman Griffith. It is a state decision and a local decision. This is a decision for the people of Bristol and the people of the Commonwealth of Virginia to decide through their legislative process. I'm reminded of, of one of my favorite all-time movies, The Wizard of Oz, when Glinda the Good is in Munchkinland, and she looks over at uh, the Wicked Witch of the West, and she says, you know, and she calls her by name, but I don't remember it, you don't have any power here. 
be gone before somebody drops a house on you. I don't want a house dropped on me, so I defer. <laughs> Question 10 will come from David McGee. We'll start with you, Congressman. Two years ago, a dominant discussion on trade focused on the flood of cheap imported steel and how it was threatening the United States steel industry. Last spring, tariffs were placed on steel imports, and now the discussion revolves around the impact of increased steel costs to many U.S. steel industries. What is the solution? Well, and there's no easy solution. Uh, anytime you start dealing with tariffs and products that are being dumped into the country and you have to deal with it, but we've dealt with that in the Ninth District before, and so I, I applaud the President for trying. I don't know that I agree with every step he's made. For example, on steel, you have issues with uh, electronic steel, e-steel, for certain industries that you really create a monopoly if you don't allow in some of the Japanese products. But we have to be careful in our trade uh, dealings. The President has already worked out something with Mexico and Canada. It looks good that we're going to work something out with the Europeans. But the Chinese have been stealing us blind. And we have to realize that we cannot allow them to continue to steal our intellectual property. And it's not just movies and songs. It's We're talking about the things that we invent and make. And they hijack it. And they make it. And they take it away from us. And they dump things. And if anybody hasn't seen the, the, the stories, read the Beth Macy book on Factory Man about the furniture fight led out of Galax, Virginia, in the 9th District by uh, John Bassett. Your time has expired. Mr. Flacamento. Yeah, our trade policy has been needing an overhaul for quite some time. That's certainly one area that I agree. I don't think tariffs are the right solution. Tariffs just have a way of escalating. It's a, it's a tit for tat. We've already seen quite a bit of that. Some of it's actually happened. Some of it is being threatened by China and others. Uh, it's hurting American farmers already who are facing another year of low returns and low incomes. And we have people in the Ninth District who use steel and aluminum in their products that are already concerned about this. What would be a better trade policy? Well, for one, we ought to insist that trade policy elevates workers, that it allows for organized labor to form unions, that it protects the environment and the health of citizens. If our trade policies were based on the idea of elevating those things with our partners, requiring them of our partners, we would not only be able to form trade deals, but in fact we would have trade deals that come back to support American manufacturers, farmers, and working people. You're listening to Mountain Talk on WMMT. In this episode, we bring you the full unedited debate between Democrat Anthony Flacavento and incumbent Republican Morgan Griffith, both of whom are up for election for Virginia's 9th District House of Representatives. WMMT does not endorse political candidates, but we welcome interviews with anyone running for political office as a public service. Opinions expressed in this episode are not necessarily those of WMMT or of Apple Shop. Question 11 will come from Beth Reinhart. We'll start with you, Mr. Flacavento. In 2016, Hillary Clinton won the popular vote. Donald Trump won the electoral vote. Some have argued for scrapping the electoral college that is established in the Constitution and in, as, instead allowing for the president to be elected based only on the popular vote. What is your opinion? I think the Electoral College should be scrapped and the president should be elected based on the popular vote. Congressman? 
That's a terrible idea. You just ceded all the power away from Virginia, and you gave it to California liberals and New York liberals, and that's not what we want in this country. The middle part of the country, including Southwest Virginia, ought to have a voice, and you should never get rid of the Electoral College. And it's very interesting that that actually was put into the Constitution to protect the smaller states, and the big giant state at that time was the Commonwealth of Virginia. That's who they were afraid of. They didn't want Virginians running the show. I don't want San Francisco and New York City running the show. We need to keep the Electoral College. The union was based upon that principle, and you risk dis destroying the union if you take away that safety net so that all the citizens in all of the regions can actually be heard in the contest of a, for a president. We're elected to Congress based on population. The Senate is based on states. The Electoral College makes sure you have a balance at the presidential level as well. Question 12 will come from Paul Johnson. We'll start with you, Congressman Griffith. The FBI has come under harsh criticism from both the political left and right due to recent controversies. What should Congress be doing to help the FBI restore its reputation as the nation's premier law enforcement agency? Congress needs to continue with its investigations of those rogue folks at the top of the FBI. There were a number of them. We don't have them all ferreted out yet. We need to find out which people, just like we should at the IRS and other places, if we've got folks who are weaponizing or making it partisan, whether it be Democrats or Republicans, if you're making our chief law enforcement agency in the country a tool for political uh, persuasion one way or the other, that's wrong. And so we've got to continue these investigations. We've got to find out who was tilting the balance of justice improperly, and those folks need to be fired. The Congress has already worked, and, and some folks have already been fired, and some folks uh, have been reassigned, but we've got to continue that because we need confidence in this country that our FBI is in fact fair and that if you're being investigated, you don't have to worry about something that you might say in one interview and not say in another interview, but for political reasons, you are prosecuted. That's wrong. Mr. Flacavento. I mean, if you want to talk about undue politicization, we ought to talk about what the president has done in relation to the FBI, the Mueller investigation, and everything else. That The problem primarily, with rare exception, is not coming from the highly trained career professionals within the FBI or the Department of Justice. Those folks are not the problem. It's that we have politicized the entire process, starting at the top with our president. He is the one who has interjected into this process uh, as sort of a tweet-based um, information campaign that has taken away the independence of the judiciary and of the FBI. We have to be able to preserve the integrity of the law enforcement, uh, including the FBI, including the Department of Justice, and including the Mueller investigation. Question 13 will come from David McGee. We'll start with you, Mr. Flacavento. It used to be that Congress would pass all 12 annual appropriations bills as standalone measures. This allowed for public scrutiny of what was in them. This has occurred only once in the previous 20 years in 2002. Today, Congress typically rolls all spending into one massive omnibus bill that is thousands of pages long with no public scrutiny. How will you work to getting Congress back into the routine of passing standalone appropriation bills? 
Well, I think it's a tough thing to unwind. It's almost become a tradition of the last few Congresses that we do this. It's certainly a reflection of the polarization we have. Part of why everything gets lumped in and usually passed at the 11th hour is because we're having a very difficult time reaching agreement on critical priorities in this country. So it, it comes certainly starts with the fact that we are too polarized and we're spending too much time on superficial issues and not getting down to the bottom of it. That's one very critical piece. The other thing I would say is that you know, I'm a working person, and I think if we had more working people in Congress, we might begin to try to simplify the legislative process. Maybe part of our problem in Congress and part of why these bills become so complex that they're mind-boggling and unpassable, unpassable is because we have too many career politicians and too many lawyers. Maybe if we had some working folks in Congress, we could write bills that only were a few pages long instead of thousands of pages long. Congressman? Well, I agree. We should not have uh, thousands and thousands of pages long bills and you get 10, 12, 15, 17 hours to read them. That's just wrong. And so if I don't have an opportunity to read the bills, I vote no. And I, I know that upsets leadership, but that's what you've got to do. And since I came to Congress, I, am, I have been out there and I am one of the people who's known as a reformer. I'm a little bit of a radical when it comes to reforming. And you know how you reform it? You go back to the original rules that we had, and sometimes you win and sometimes you lose, but you pass the legislation, and that's what we need to do. We've done better in the last year or two, but we're not there. Another thing we need to do, and both parties are guilty of this, we've allowed the leadership to have too much power. We need to have a devolution of power from leadership down to the regular members. When a bill passes a committee, when it passes the Appropriations Committee on the spending bills, that bill should come to the floor within a few days, not sit around for months while they haggle in the back room on how they're going to try to get it passed or not passed. Question 14 will come from Beth Reinhart. We'll start with you, Congressman. The state and federal government both put emphasis on standardized testing in public schools, yet there is ample evidence that disabled, disadvantaged, and English as second language students struggle on standardized tests. What should be done? Well, and they already have some programs where you can have people with you. So if you're a disabled student, somebody can be with you on the exam. Uh, I have a friend who uh, has a se severe dyslexia problem. And when they first started doing it, they, when she was in school, they thought that she just didn't have the brain power. She's now teaching uh, children with disabilities. And so there, there needs to be more flexibility with that. The federal government definitely needs to grant uh, waivers whenever people ask for opportunities to have people helping those students with disadvantages, particularly those with disabilities and those with language problems, so that they can understand the questions that are being asked. And it, it crosses the board. It's not just dyslexia. I had a friend who had a hard time. Uh, he was on my swim team, and he had a hard time with it because he was deaf. And some of the words he'd never heard. So they'd use words on the exam that he'd never heard. So they learned that they had to go back in and translate, define the word because his vocabulary was limited because of his, his hearing problems. So these are things that we need to work on and, and we need to realize. And your time's expired. Mr. Flacavento. We were with school teachers in Russell County just yesterday afternoon as one of several education forums we've done in this very issue that you've brought up that in fact came up. 
it's part of a larger problem, which although we've made a small amount of progress, we still are forcing teachers to teach to the test. That's true of sometimes unrealistic expectations of children with particular learning challenges, but it's also true across the board. My wife, Lori, was a school teacher for 31 years. I've met with scores of school teachers. What we're doing to the teaching profession is terrible. We need serious reform, and though many of those decisions are made at the local and the state level, what the federal government can do is it can stop issuing mandates, especially test score driven mandates, without resources. We should flip that. The federal government should invest, seriously invest in our public schools, especially struggling rural schools, and move away from the simplistic mandates of test-based learning. Question 15 will come from Paul Johnson. We'll start with you, Mr. Flacavento. Lee County Schools made headlines this summer when the school board approved arming some employees and teachers in an effort to improve school security. What greater role can and should the federal government play in funding school safety initiatives like resource officers, metal detectors, and video surveillance systems? Well, I think there has to be that. It's an unfortunate reality of our, our current time. Um, that we do have to account for things that perhaps uh, 10 or 20 years ago we barely thought of. So yes, I think federal cost support matching kinds of funds for school resource officers would be part of it. I'll tell you another thing that's badly neglected and would go a long way towards precluding school violence rather than stopping it when it's about to happen is investment in guidance counselors. We have so many of our schools in which they're generally underfunded, but particularly they're losing their guidance counselors. And Lori and I know a good friend who was a guidance counselor in Washington County Schools, and she says that she spent most of the last six or seven years of her career with test preparation, not with helping identify students who are struggling, not with helping to ferret out the student that maybe has a, a problem with rage or anger, not with protecting those students who are bullied. We need to invest in all of those things as solutions to school violence. Congressman? There is a school safety uh, program, a grant program for school safety and to try to help schools, uh, but there's not enough money for all 50 states and all the different counties and cities. And so what each state has to look at, as well as the federal grants that are available, each state has to look at their resources and make decisions accordingly. When you have rich counties in the Commonwealth of Virginia like Arlington and Fairfax, and they don't want to send money downstate, that's a problem, particularly when you, when you say to Lee County, which is a, a poor county compared to, it's a beautiful place, but a poor county when it comes to dollars compared to Arlington and Fairfax. And what you need to say at the state level is those folks need to pony up, put some money up for school resource officers, or let Lee County find out what solution works for Lee County. The federal government shouldn't dictate everything, and if the state government isn't going to step up to the plate, then let Lee County make their own decisions. Question 16 will come from Dave McGee. We'll start with you, Congressman. There have been natural gas discoveries in nearby regions of Virginia. What is your position on fracking? Virginia's had fracking for 40 to 50 years, so I don't have any problem with fracking. We've done it in the coal, uh, the coal fields uh, for decades. Uh, it's been new in the rest of the country, but it has not uh, been a problem in our area. You have to take a look at it. You have to make sure you're so far away from a mine entrance and that kind of thing, but Virginia passed laws long before uh, you know, anybody else was looking at fracking. The difference is the horizontal fracking that has been used to get some of the shale uh, gas in other parts of the country. We don't have a lot of that in the Ninth District. 
little bits and pieces, but nothing to account for. So I, I don't have a problem with fracking, and I think that we should use it because we need to use all of our natural resources, whether it be natural gas, coal, oil, solar, wind. We need to use them all for an all-of-the-above energy policy. And to come in and say that we're not going to use new technologies to improve that uh, mix of energy is just wrong, and it's short-sighted, and we need to continue to help our economy grow by using our resources. Mr. Flacamento. Yeah, fracking has really been on a lot of people's minds in Giles County, in Montgomery County, in uh, parts of Roanoke County, because a lot of the frack gas, not so much coming from Virginia, but coming from West Virginia and Western Pennsylvania, is now being proposed to move through pipelines, the Mountain Valley Pipeline and the Atlantic Coast Pipeline. Myself, I think that the fracking process should meet the same threshold, the same environmental threshold that other in energy development has to meet. Right now, the rules that fracking has to abide by is, are simply too light, too easy on that process. And it's led to everything from localized environmental problems around, in, particularly in places like West Virginia and Western Pennsylvania, where there's a great deal of it going on, to also the fact that we have too much methane leaking. And one of the most important environmental be benefits of gas, its low emissions, is lost when it goes out into the atmosphere and becomes a greenhouse gas. Sure, we can do fracking, but there ought to be a clear environmental standard for that and the pipelines. Question 17 will come from Beth Reinhart. We'll start with you, Mr. Flacavento. What is your opinion of recent diplomatic initiatives regarding North Korea? Um, I guess my opinion on that is that I wonder um, if there's a there there. I hope that there is. But it seems to me there's been a lot of bluster, first threats followed by bluster, and then most recently with proclamation that basically the problem is solved, that the threat, uh, the nuclear threat from North Korea is essentially over. I find that very difficult to believe. I know there is still a lot of activity going on in North Korea for their nuclear weapons program. If we can make progress in them truly disarming, and if that can be part of a larger settlement about security throughout the whole, whole Korean peninsula, I would certainly support that. But right now, it seems to me we got a lot of fanfare, very little details, and very little certainty that we're actually moving towards a denuclearized North Korea. Question 18 will come from Paul John. My apology, Congressman. <laughs> I probably want to get to question 18, but I'd like to answer this one first. Uh, look, a year, year and a half ago, people were making fun of President Trump, saying, oh my gosh, he's crazy. He said he had a bigger button than, uh, than the North Korean uh, president had. And everybody on the left was saying this is just crazy. And then suddenly we had started having talks. No president before the current president ever said that they would actually meet with this uh, individual. Why? Because they didn't want to give him any respect. Well, you know what? The president said, we've got a major problem. They're about to have nuclear weapons. If we just show a little respect, maybe we can get something done. Now, I agree with my opponent. I don't know if it will actually be completed. I don't know if it's in the end, and history will look back and tell us whether or not it will work. But I know this. What we did for 20 years didn't work, and we, were, we cannot go down that same path. President Trump chose to go outside the box, look for a solution. He's still looking for the solution. It's working. Obviously, I can't wait to get to question 18, which will come from Paul Johnson. We'll start with you, Congressman. It must be really good. 
Following every mass shooting, disagreement erupts over gun violence and especially gun ownership. One side argues for further restrictions. The other side argues Second Amendment rights are sacred. Neither side seems willing to budge. Where do you stand on this divide? Well, it is a divide. It's a philosophical difference. And, um, you know, that's why we're here having this debate, so people can make a decision for themselves and decide what, what side they're on. Because this is a, even with my friends, this is a fundamental difference of opinion. Everybody thinks these situations are tragic. Nobody wants to see anybody have to go through the heartbreak of losing a child. But we have to look at the cause. And a gun is an instrument. It's not the cause. The cause is generally, in school shooting situations, it's generally mental health. We look at this time and time again, and we see that, which is why in 21st Century Cures, I was proud there was a whole component in there on increasing funding and, and resources for mental health services. We have to get to these folks before there's a problem. We have to try to help them and then identify them and make sure the community is not being endangered by turning a blind eye to a severe mental illness. Mr. Flacavento. Yeah, we do need to look at the cause. And wouldn't it be nice if we could use federal money to study the causes of gun violence? Because for the last 22 years, it has been prohibited to use federal money, taxpayer dollars, to actually study why do we have so much gun violence in this country. We have an unacceptable and distinct amount of gun violence in the United States. And yet, for 22 years, in a nod to the gun industry, we have prohibited our federal agencies from even studying gun violence. That's step one. I'm a gun owner. I am a Second Amendment's right person. And the way that you framed it, Paul, I think is exactly right. The fact is we can preserve the Second Amendment. We can allow law-abiding citizens like myself and many others in this room to own a gun and yet take serious steps. And one of those would also be a truly universal background check system so that people who ought not to have guns for whatever set of reasons can't get them. There are several common sense steps we can take and we've just been dilly-dallying for far too long. Question 19 will come from David McGee. We'll start with you, Mr. Flacavento. What are your thoughts on the death penalty? I grew up in a pretty religious, a Catholic household, and the Catholic Church uh, believes um, that the death penalty is something that is fundamentally immoral. Now, over the years, I've moved away from a number of the things that the Catholic Church teaches. I'm my own person at this point. But one thing that has stuck with me from those early days is that the problem fundamentally with the death penalty is that it falls disproportionately on poor people. It falls disproportionately on people who can't get a good lawyer. It falls especially on people of color. If the death penalty was equally administered, it might be a different story. But for me, I just can't see it as a necessary part of our criminal justice system. I think it's hurting us more than helping us. I think we can have deterrence through the appropriate sentencing without resorting to the death penalty. Congressman? I think the death penalty should only be exacted by a society in those most heinous of situations where the crime is so bad and where it's clear that it wasn't just a crime of passion, but that it was of a depraved heart. And therefore, I think that we should have the death penalty. That being said, let me address something my opponent brought up, because this is a serious subject, and I don't want anybody under misunderstanding. The government, whether it be the state or the federal government, has an 
has an open pocketbook to defend people who are charged with uh, crimes that get, bring the death penalty. If you're facing a death penalty charge, you get multiple attorneys. They appoint people who are trained specifically to handle those types of cases because it is serious. The judges take it seriously. The lawyers take it seriously. And money is not an object in death penalty cases. So I don't want anybody to leave here tonight thinking that anybody who's facing the death penalty doesn't get the very finest lawyers that are available in their area. I'm going to rebut. If Rebuttal. That may be true in the final analysis at the end of that process, but the reality of our criminal justice system is that everything from being stopped in the first place to being charged and the type of charge that you get to the likelihood of your conviction to the severity of your sentence is absolutely tied to money. It's absolutely falling disproportionately on lower income people and on people of color. There may be that provision at the very end, but the criminal justice system is not serving poor people well. Gentlemen, we're pressed on time, so for the last question, you will have 30 seconds to respond. Question 20 will come from Beth Reinhardt, and we'll start with you, Congressman. What do you think the dominant worldview is of the United States, and is it positive or negative? The dominant worldview is still very, very positive. You know, the press likes to tell us that that's changing, but that is just not the case. There are so many people in the world who would like to have their countries be as good as the United States, both in the freedoms that we have, in the economy that we have, and the fact is, is that we are still the number one nation in all respects, not just militarily, but economically, and as a country that is a shining beacon on the hill for everyone else. Mr. Flacavento. I'm sure that we are still well-respected in many parts of the country, but I also know from a little bit of travel and from a lot of reading that that respect has been falling. And that respect has been falling both because of the inconsistency of our president and because we simply have not been projecting the ideals that we say that we stand for, the ideals of liberty, the ideals that everybody gets a fair shot, the ideals that where you were born and what your income is does not matter. We are not projecting those values out to the rest of the world. And your time's expired. And gentlemen, I was informed by our control room, we can actually squeeze in one more question with 30-second responses. So question 21 will come from David, uh, sorry, Paul Johnson. And we'll start with you, um, Congressman, or with you, Mr. Flacavento. Many people ages 65 and older rely exclusively on Medicare for their health care insurance. What can be done to improve it? Well, there's a lot of things that can be done to improve it. Certainly streamlining a number of the functions. We right now have evolved Medicare to the point that we have Part A, Part B, Part C, Part D. Um, I think that there can be some consolidation so that people who are using Medicare aren't using four different systems, applying to four different parts of the system. I think it should all be collapsed together. And then I also think that we simply need to more fully fund Medicare, because right now Medicare is operating at a deficit, and we need to bring that back up. That, okay, Your time's you. expired. Medicare is operating at a deficit, he said, but he wants to make Medicare for all come across the board, which means they're going to take the money out of the Medicare system and spread it against across all populations. Nationalized, government-run health care will not work, and it kills Medicare. Make no mistake about it, it kills Medicare, and it gives less services for a huge cost, $32 trillion over 10 years, in addition to what we're already spending on health care. You get less, you pay more. 
Gentlemen, that concludes the question portion. All rebuttals have expired. Earlier, the campaigns drew cards to determine the order of closing remarks. Mr. Flacavento, you go first. Well, it's been a lively debate and a lot of uh, questions, and I'm glad we've been able to do it. I appreciate uh, WCYB, the Herald Courier, and, and also the Bristol Chamber. Here's the fundamental question that I have for you all is, do you feel that you're getting the good enough representation? Because I think that the role of a congressperson, man or woman, is to provide that representation. And I think also the role of the congressperson is to represent working people. We already have way too many rich people in Congress. We do. The rich have plenty of friends, the rich and the powerful. What we don't have in Congress is we don't have people that represent the Ninth District and our population. Working folks, farmers, union people, miners. I'm somebody who is avowedly and decidedly in favor of working people because I'm one myself. And because I've worked with farmers, with coal miners, with loggers, with small businesses for many years, all 33 years that I've been here. I've seen what's possible when we invest in our communities, when we invest in our ability to solve our own problems, when we help small businesses, new businesses, new manufacturers, and family farmers take the steps to be both profitable and lead the way. We can build a lot more prosperity, but it's going to have to start by electing representatives who, in fact, are willing to do the work to represent working people. And that's why we have done 98 town hall meetings. Our 100th town hall meeting is taking place in Marion next Tuesday. Those town hall meetings have been an opportunity for me to learn from literally thousands of people across the 9th District. And I've been learning a bundle. And most fundamentally what I've learned is that too many people are suffering. Too many people's issues and concerns are being left out. So I want to represent the people of the 9th District. I want to take a vision that says it's the government's role to help us help ourselves. Thank you. Congressman. Thank you very much. I am so proud to represent the 9th District of Virginia. I am a product of the 9th uh, District. I grew up in Salem in a single-parent household. I uh, knew that if I was going to do anything in life, achieve anything in life, I was going to have to work hard. And so I started as a paper boy at age 12. I worked at McDonald's in high school. I then came to Emory and Henry College. And I worked through, had some loans, worked through the college, uh, was a lifeguard, was a janitor's assistant, did all kinds of things to make sure that I had some money. I then went off to law school and then came back uh, home to practice law, made a choice to come back to Salem, Virginia. I am married uh, to my wife, Hillary. We have three children. My daughter, Abby, is a, a freshman at Virginia Tech. My two boys are in public schools in Salem. Tonight, you've heard a lot of things. And you've heard that we, we all appreciate, by the way, the, the chamber, WCYB, the Bristol Herald Courier, our moderator, et cetera. But you've heard a contrast of views tonight. And some of it didn't all come out, but you heard some of it. I am pro-NRA. I am endorsed uh, by the NRA with an A-plus rating. I believe in a pro-life position on the abortion issue. I believe in coal use. I believe in coal mining. And I believe in helping coal miners. I supported the tax cuts that we voted on because you should be able to decide how to spend more of your money. It is stimulating the economy. Jobs are increasing. This was something that the president proposed and aided by Congress, we were able to do it. Many of the president's policies are working to make a, be a better place in the United States of America. 
I work hard for the people of the 9th District. I hope you've seen these. When I go to Washington, D.C., I take your views with me. I hope tonight you've seen that contrast between us because that's what elections are about. And I ask you to think about the issues. And when you go to the polls on November 6th, I ask for your vote. This concludes tonight, tonight's debate. Candidates, good luck in your campaigns. Thank you to David McGee, Beth Reinhart, and Paul Johnson. Make certain you watch News 5 for coverage of this debate and all the day's breaking news. Join us at Facebook at facebook.com, News 5 WCYB. Tell us who you think won the debate. And in closing, we'd like to salute our military, law enforcement, firefighters, EMTs, and other emergency personnel for their service to our communities and our nation. I'm Mark Hyman. Good night. That's it for this episode of Mountain Talk, featuring the October 18th debate between Democrat Anthony Flaccavento and incumbent Republican Morgan Griffith, both of whom are up for election for Virginia's 9th District House of Representatives. Thanks to WYCB for permission to re-air this debate, and to Rich Kirby for the recording. WMMT does not endorse political candidates, but we welcome interviews with anyone running for political office as a public service. Opinions expressed in this show are not necessarily those of WMMT or Apple Shop. If you'd like to hear this or previous episodes again, you can find them on our website at WMMT.org or download Mountain Talk as a podcast from SoundCloud or Stitcher. I've been your host, Rachel Geringer, and from all of us at WMMT, thanks for listening to Real People Radio. Thank you.